The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. I've often wondered, why is it that mainstream media focus so much on negative doom and gloom news? And I'd like to tell you a little story, Jay, which indicates that it may not be a characteristic of humans. It may be a characteristic just of our culture, something that we should definitely oppose. You see, Peter Truman, a few decades ago, was the lead anchor for Global News TV in Canada. He was in the hospital for something like a broken leg, and he decided to tune into the news to see what was going on. And he said, oh, it was so depressing, so negative, so doom and gloom. He just turned it off. And he wondered then, was this kind of fixation on negative doom and gloom news, was it a characteristic of humans in general, or was it specifically our culture? And what he found was it is our culture. It's not humans in general. There are, in fact, other cultures that don't focus on negative doom and gloom news, an example being the Bedouins in the desert. When they're traveling through such difficult conditions, the last thing they want to do is hear negative news. So what they do is they purposely tell tribes that they come across about births and marriages and positive things, because they know traveling across the desert is hard enough as it is without being weighted down with negative news. So in that vein, we're going to focus on something positive today, and that is the impact of our farmers and our wonderful agriculture industry on today's world. So Jay, surely it's not healthy for us to focus so much on negative news in our society. Well, Tom, you're exactly right. And I rarely have a conversation of more than 30 minutes with friends that I will not bring up that very subject because they will always be feeding me the bad news they saw on the internet recently. And they're shocked when I say uh, we don't uh, watch any TV news or radio news. Uh, we get it all you know, through a network of friends and, and on the internet. But we uh, we're never brought down uh, by the bad news. And that's all it is. And yet I've called television stations and radio stations and talked to them about that. And, and I've been told that if they don't talk about something that's going on bad in the neighborhood, like a, a big car crash where somebody's killed or some piece of bad news, they'll get telephone calls wanting uh, to know uh, why they don't get it. And right now, the most amazing bad news that I'm reading and hearing is involved in agriculture. I have been working in agriculture for uh, the better part of the last 30 years, lecturing uh, to farm groups all over the country. And there just aren't better people than farmers. 
And it's been an absolute shock to me that the left is trying uh, to bring down the farmer and make him be a boogeyman that's hurting our environment, uh, using too much water, too much energy. It's absolutely absurd. And it has really gotten uh, me mad. And I'm excited uh, that we're going to focus our show today on that exact subject, what Mm -hmm. the left is doing to uh, American agriculture and the farmer. Yeah, I couldn't think of anything more important. And, you know, for that, we're bringing in a guest, former electrical engineer and MBA graduate Steve Gorham. He gave up his business interests to focus on fighting for freedom in America. And today he's the executive director of the Climate Science Coalition of America and the author of three books that we'll link to under the show when this goes to podcast. Steve initially focused on the human-caused global warming fraud. And he wrote two amazing books. And he's also written a recent book called Outside the Green Box, Rethinking Sustainable Development, in which he talks about and tries to educate people about exactly what you're saying. Namely, we have a really fine agriculture industry and farmers who make our healthy food possible. So that's going to be our topic for today. And Steve, who's been on 300 radio shows, is our guest. So welcome to the program, Steve. Hey, Tom. Jay, great to join you today. Yeah, great. Now, according to the United Nations, world population is supposed to reach something like 8 billion by 2023 and 10 billion by 2057. Are we in for famines in the future, do you think, Steve? Yeah, that's a, a question that, that comes over and over again. And a lot of the folks uh, that are concerned about global warming and things uh, like what they call overconsumption and overproduction are worried about famines in the future. Uh, it's been, this has been going on for uh, several centuries now. Uh, an Anglican minister by the name of Thomas Robert Malthus in 1798 said that population when unchecked increases in a geometrical ratio like uh, 2, 4, 8, 16, uh, growing. And he said subsistence or food increases only in arithmetical ratio, 2, 4, 6, 8. Mm -hmm. And he said basically that people are going to run out of food and and population would be constrained by famine. That's not been the case at all because people ignore technology and they just assume uh, what we do tomorrow will be the same we've uh, done today. But with uh, biotechnology and genetically modified uh, grains, uh, we've increased our yields uh, dramatically. In fact, I read in a paper that uh, you wrote that, you know, within a, over a certain 50-year pe- period where the populations of the planet uh, doubled, the food output uh, tripled, and that's doing even uh, better now. And they've tried, these, the, the leftists have tried to keep from Uh, the public, the tremendous advances in agriculture. I mean, today's farmer is not your grandfather or father's farmer. The technology is as advanced as uh, really any aspect of American society, but they don't want you to know that. And they tell lie after lie that the farmer is using too much water, too much energy. They're using chemicals that are uh, injurious. uh, And all of it is totally untrue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the old expression, if it bleeds, it leads. I mean, 
our media culturally seem focused on negative stuff. And I think you're right, Jay. I think that to a certain extent, this is actually damaging our society because they don't know the facts and it make people depressed. You know, a friend of mine works in death and dying and in Canada. And she says that she looks at all the stats. She says suicide rates among young people are going up and surely the negative focus of the news is a contributor to that. Well, Steve, what kind of response do you get on all the very many radio shows you do trying to set the public uh, straight? Do the hosts of your your shows uh, pretty much accept the positive views that you explain? They they pretty much do. Typically, they don't invite me on if they don't like my point of view. But uh, we get some some interesting uh, comments from from uh, folks when they open up to questions, which is always fun. And I you know, I like to uh, hear whatever people say, and there aren't always right answers on all of these. One, one of the fun, uh, funny things that happened was I went on with Leslie Marshall one time. I don't know if you know Leslie Marshall. She's a big Fox News contributor from the liberal point of view. And uh, she got me on. We started talking about man-made warming. And I, I kind of said a bunch of things contrary to what her point of view was. And when we got to the break, her uh, program manager came on and said, well, we're going to have technical difficulties. We can't continue, <laughs> which, I, which I thought was a lot of fun. But, but typically, uh, you know, people listen to what I have to say. And, um, and uh, you know, we do, a different, we do have different points of view in society today. Well, when I was a kid, or even not that long ago, I mean, the American farmer was head, held up as the epitome of, you know, everything was good in America, hardworking, you know, really straight shooting uh, people. And the, back in 1900, half the population was involved in farming. Today, uh, there are only 2 million people directly involved in agriculture. And I, I'm afraid they don't speak up much for themselves. But it's been amazing to me that the left has been able to vilify uh, the folks that, that used to be just considered the best there could be. Yeah, agriculture is increasingly under attack. Uh, energy has been first, but more and more it's agriculture. And so we have, you know, a lot of people talking about, as you say, not only genetically modified foods, use of land over use of water, but synthetic fertilizer is another big topic. And just the use of, uh, of oil and gas uh, for mechanization for tractors and, and other uh, methods to produce these tremendous uh, outputs that we have nowadays from agriculture. As you say, about uh, two of every hundred people in the United States can feed the rest of the country and we're able to export food as, as well. It's really remarkable. Another Sorry. guy uh, on, the, on the population path, I like to say the guy's probably been the most wrong in modern history. <laughs> A guy by the name of Dr. Paul Ehrlich, who wrote The Population Bomb in 1968, which was a worldwide bestseller. And he said the battle to feed humanity is over. In the 1970s and 1980s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. And so we have all these people, and, and this has kind of morphed into the, uh, the climate problem. We have people like uh, President, former President Obama, President Biden talking about the possibility of global famine because of man-made warming. But in fact, uh, with what the farmers have done with the rising output, world famine has been declining for more than 100 years now. Uh, We used to have decades with about 10 million people who died from famine every year. Uh, That's down by a factor of uh, more than 10 in the last 100 years. 
I read in one of your articles that uh, we've reduced, uh, you know, really hunger and people that were not getting out of diets from something like, you know, 30% down to 12 or 13% in the last couple of decades. And it's, uh, it's still dropping. But Ehrlich was wrong on so many things. It's been amazing. In fact, I, I think I can say that he's never said anything that was right. And yet he kept getting awards for, for being wrong over and over again. But the one that I've lectured a lot about, uh, and it, it took uh, most people a long time to catch up with me, and that was the projection of population growth uh, is nothing near what they were talking about. 20 years ago, they were talking about uh, as many as 15 billion people, then it dropped to 12 and, and dropped to 10. Uh, my projections and studying now is I kind of doubt that we'll uh, necessarily beat 9 billion, and we are clearly able to feed that 9 billion. We might have more economic problems when populations stop growing. Sorry. Yeah, and you're right. You're right. So in the 60s, when Ehrlich wrote his book, uh, global fertility rates, that's a number of children per woman, were about five. Every, uh, on average, every woman in the world would have about five children. Uh, that has dropped now to uh, about two. The real sad about, thing about population is that we had many, many nations imposing fertility programs of forced sterilization, forced abortion. China and India were big nations that did that. Even our own U.S. export departments were, uh, foreign aid departments were saying, uh, we won't give you aid unless you put population control programs into place. Really a tragedy. Uh, but, you know, we had, a, we had a transformation of society in many ways. Uh, we had people, enter, uh, women entering the workforce. Uh, we had a reduction in infant mortality. We had many other factors that made uh, small families uh, very stable. And so today, as you say, we're almost at, we're getting close to zero population growth globally. That should happen in, in, a, in two or three decades. Yeah. Well, well you know, when I, when I was growing up, it was always politically correct to say we had this huge population problem. Both you guys yeah. are saying that we don't. No, we, we definitely don't. In fact, China, uh, for our listeners that worry about China taking over the world, they have too many problems and they will uh, fail. And one of them is the fact for 30 years they uh, controlled their population by allowing people only to have one child. They've lost a generation. Now they don't have enough people to take care of all the old people. They don't have enough people for their factory floor. And they are going to pay the price for having a limited population. They're allowing all families now to have at least uh, uh, two children. But if uh, over two decades, so many families got used to having one or none, uh, they're not going to build back uh, to the two-child family soon enough to save them from many, many economic problems. I find it interesting that our universities today really have, uh, again, kind of an unbalanced view of the agriculture and uh, the economy. There's a guy in history who saved a billion people, an agricultural biologist. You guys probably know who that is. Um, of course, Norman Borlaug. Guy by the name of Norman Borlaug, who in the 60s, when Ehrlich was making his claims and talking about hundreds of millions of people uh, uh, dying from famine, Borlaug went out and produced uh, high yield strains of corn and wheat and rice. 
And he spread those across the world to uh, India, Mexico, a lot of other places. So he saved a billion people with his crossbreeding of plants. Uh, the sad thing is today, uh, there's, you know, Paul Ehrlich is probably better known in universities than Norman Borlaug. Mm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's true. He won the, Borlaug won the Nobel Prize in 1971 for his work. And I have seen articles today trying to vilify him, trying to, to redo history and say what he did was not a good thing. It's amazing the lies that these people will tell. And I had thought naively that they would not be successful with agriculture. But, you know, people who live in cities and have no touch with the outdoors have no clue what farming is about today. And very definitely in my lectures to uh, ag groups, I always say uh, it's not only not your father's agriculture, it's not your grandfather's agriculture. And the average uh, person not familiar with the outdoors would not have any idea of the phenomenal technology we're using to feed the world today. Mm -hmm. So Steve, how has modern agriculture achieved such high levels of output? You said some of that, but can you give us a synopsis? Well, Jay mentioned a couple things. Um, uh, bioengineered crops is one, and we can get into that a little bit. Uh, synthetic nitrogen is another big example that, that uh, during the 20th century was put into place. Uh, we have uh, uh, crops in nature have a shortage of nitrogen in the soil. Another, of course, is mechanization using tractors instead of horses and, and uh, human labor. Uh, if, you, if you take a barrel of oil, <laughs> uh, the energy in one barrel of oil is roughly equal to 11 years of, of human labor working 40 hours a week. It's really wow. remarkable. So anyway, agriculture wow. has, has, has applied this uh, with combines and tractors and all the other things they use. It, it's really been a remarkable remarkable situation. One example is corn in the United States. We, uh, uh, land used for, used for corn peaked in 1918, the amount of land used. And it, it went down a little bit. It's come up a little bit. We're using more for ethanol now. But uh, the productivity of, of corn is up by a factor of 10 during that period. And we're using basically the same land we were using 100 years ago. Wow. So really remarkable. Yeah, I was reading there's now more forest in New England than there was at the time of the Civil War. Is that partly because of farming being much more efficient? Well, it's, and it's energy use as well. It's a combination of farming and energy, and people don't have to cut down the forest to, to heat their homes anymore. Uh, but you're right, the bigger factor is agriculture. Virginia is the same way. My wife and I bought a condo in Virginia Beach, and we went up to visit Yorktown. And when they had the Battle of Yorktown, everything was plantations all around Yorktown. Now it's, now it's all forest. You know, so there are many, many areas that were used to, to grow crops in the past that aren't needed today, uh, particularly in uh, modern nations that use advanced farming techniques. They talk about the Anthropocene, human impact on the environment, as if it's all bad. But obviously that's not true, is it? Well, that's, that's exaggerated too. The whole idea that humans are controlling the Earth's climate with the carbon dioxide, that's, uh, that's a big part for, for calling the current era the, the Anthropocene. <laughs> well, you mentioned uh, ethanol, uh, one of my favorite uh, topics that has everything to do with the farm lobby, which I'm not so uh, in love with, that uh, 
have promoted uh, growing more corn to make fuel out of it goes back to some legislation in 2005 when we were not the world's leader in, in uh, oil production and natural uh, gas. And they thought yep. by uh, turning some of our corn into ethanol and blending it with our fuel, we would uh, save having to import uh, more foreign oil. Uh, that has turned out to be totally unnecessary. And the public now is really being punished by having to pay more for gas that gets less mileage, but the farm lobby, the farm states have so much power, we've been unable to get rid of a series of legislative bills that require uh, the growing of ethanol. And I'm also guessing that the average uh, animal farmer who's raising cows and, and pigs using corn as a staple for their diet are not too happy with all the support for ethanol either because it raises the price of corn. Well, it does. Yeah, 40% of the U.S. corn crop goes into ethanol production right now. And I just saw some headlines the other day, you know, the administration's concerned with rising gasoline prices. And one of the reasons some of the experts in the industry have said, uh, we, we've just had a little bit of a downturn in the, the price of crude oil from over 80 into the 70s. And the gas prices have been sticky. They haven't come down. And, and uh, some of the experts are saying it's because the price of ethanol is so high and the required blending of 10% of the refineries is keeping that price high. So yeah, the, uh, ethanol is a factor in, in the cost of gasoline and diesel today. So maybe we can go through the misconceptions one at a time. So you mentioned the business about agriculture and climate. Is agriculture really destroying the climate, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know you guys have a lot of experts on this program about climate. Let me just make a couple points. According to a, a number of people, uh, here, uh, the United Nations, for example, said that 14% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture. That may be true. The problem is, with all this logic, and they hold what I call a superstition of man-made warming, is that human emissions are only a very, very small part of the climate. If you break down the greenhouse effect, uh, which is what's blamed for uh, dangerous global warming, the idea that uh, sunlight comes into their atmosphere, what isn't reflected is absorbed by the surface of the earth. The earth as a warm body gives off lower energy infrared radiation. And almost all of that is on its way out through the atmosphere is captured by greenhouse gases temporarily. And those gases then re-radiate that energy. And that does tend to warm the surface of the earth. There is a greenhouse effect. The problem is if you, if you break down the greenhouse effect, the first thing you realize is that our dominant greenhouse gas in the atmosphere is not, is not methane, it's not carbon dioxide, it's water vapor and clouds. Somewhere between 70 and 90% of Earth's greenhouse effect is, is due to water vapor and clouds. Most of the remaining effect is carbon dioxide, but all of that, almost all of that is caused by natural emissions of carbon dioxide from the oceans or from the biosphere. Man-made CO2 from our industry is only about one or two parts per hundred of Earth's greenhouse effect. Very, very small. You're describing that uh, so precisely and succinctly, and uh, I would guess that most of our listeners recognize that man, human-caused uh, climate change is absolutely a fraud. 
and it's a fraud. Really, the effort is to eliminate uh, fossil fuels, uh, get us to use wind and solar, which is impossible, and ultimately to ration all energy and take control of our lives. Unfortunately, uh, so many people read it and hear it daily, they believe it. And so we're, we're battling the mainstream media that tells the public every day we have something to do with the climate, which is uh, totally false. I'm one of the few people, Steve, that will say that man's impact on the thermostat of the earth is zero. Unfortunately, we have hundreds of wonderful scientists that are essentially on our side, you and, and me and Tom's, uh, but they're trying to find a number that man impact is. But that number is so many decimal points to the, so many zeros to the right of the decimal point that it's inconsequential. But in yeah, their I, writings, they don't seem to be willing to say that. Yeah, I think we could agree that it wouldn't be detectable. It's not measurable right. within the error. It's very, very small. So that's one thing. You know, second point I want to make is we've had a very small, gentle warming. We've had one degree Celsius of warming in 140 years, 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit. That is very small historically. Over the last 10,000 years, geologists would tell you we've had at least four warmer periods that have been hundreds of years long when the climate was naturally warmer than it is today. And so you got to kind of scratch your head and say, well, how can my neighbor's SUV be causing something that's abnormal? And the answer is that it really isn't. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is the earth is going to do what it's going to do. We might go into a, a decade or two of cooling. It, it's very possible. And then we'll see how, how well the, the theory of man-made warming holds up. Yeah, and that's a lot more dangerous, isn't it? Nine times as many people die of uh, excess cold than of excess warmth. Heat. Yeah. They do. Absolutely. More people get sick in the cold months than the warm months. Our, our flu months in the Northern Hemisphere are about uh, October to March. Southern Hemisphere, it's during their warm months. I've checked some of the recent COVID in infections. In the United States, our peak uh, months for infection were last winter, uh, December or January. In Brazil, they were in uh, June and July. So more people get sick during the cold months uh, more people die during the cold months. If we have a little global warming, it'll probably uh, be good for everyone almost all over the world. Well, as we're approaching the end of our first section, Steve, I want to change the topic to something that probably all our listeners have heard a little bit about, but uh, you have written widely on it, and that is the attack on our eating meat. The people yeah. that think we're screwing up the climate of the earth think we can save the earth by eating less meat and uh, i know that's something you're knowledgeable about and i want to talk about it when we come back i'm dr peter mccullough if you go to healthycell.com you can check out the technology the products of healthy cell these are very innovative products they are a form of bio nutraceuticals that are bioactive and they come in a variety of categories. One is daily essentials, which are the bioactive multi and the vegan essentials. And then the next category is performance. And this is the REM sleep supplement. I've talked about it a lot. I think it's very effective and I recommend it uh, for myself 
and for my family, but as well as my patients. I'm having great luck with this because it is such a terrific product with um, a blend of, I think is what's needed for not only promoting sleep, but also getting quality sleep. And one gets quality sleep, then there's restfulness, and the next day is better, and then the next night is better, and it becomes a progressively positive cycle for the human body. And the next product in the performance category is Focus and Recall. Focus and Recall. And I think that is the featured product that um, is coming into play for those with long COVID and brain fog that develops after COVID-19, the respiratory infection, but also after COVID-19 vaccination. And then finally, the main horse in healthy cell is the targeted support of immune super boost. Immune super boost. And what we have here is a series of products that really can tow the line for patients who are working their way through the COVID-19 pandemic, either at risk for COVID-19, have had COVID-19 and recovered, are in the post-COVID syndrome, which is now a diagnosis we put in the electronic medical record, and are suffering through a variety of manifestations of post-COVID syndrome. And then lastly, those who are in the throes of vaccine reactions of some sort, whether they be uh, acute serious vaccine reactions or the more common mild uh, prolonged vaccine reactions. We now know the spike protein lasts in the human body after the respiratory infection or after vaccination for up to 15 months. We had this breaking development uh, brought to you on America Out Loud Talk Radio with Dr. Bruce Patterson on a recent episode. So we know this is the case. And so we know if the Wuhan spike protein is in the human body for up to 15 months, it's going to cause damage. It's going to cause inflammation. It's going to set a whole variety of immune responses up working against our body and potentially damaging cells, tissues, uh, intercellular communication systems, and very importantly, influencing organ function. And here is where we need the maximum defense for the body, uh, the maximum and the most appropriate blend of micronutrients, uh, minerals, as well as vitamins to help the body get through this difficult time. So go to HealthyCell.com and check out the products. And in the promotional code, use the term out loud for 20% off your first purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. Steve, Tom and I are both physical fitness nuts. I guess I can't speak for Tom, but I can tell you that uh, if I didn't have a certain amount of meat protein in my diet, I would be unable to do the kinds of physical weightlifting and uh, swimming and biking. I wouldn't have the strength. You know, I've not seen too many vegetarians that are really stout uh, and well-muscled. There are a few, but not many. And the left is attacking uh, the meat industry. They're doing disgusting things like trying to grow meat with bacteria and their their, uh, companies actually selling meatless meat, which is, in fact, a lot of them have proven to be lying. But it's a terrible idea. I know you've written about this. How has this started and how is it being pursued? Uh, Much of it comes out of the uh, the man-made warming superstition, if you will. Uh, Just to to quote uh, an economist, Jerry Rifkin, I like to uh, put a a video clip up when I present to audiences about him. And he goes on, he says, you know, we have 1.4 billion cows out there and they're taking up 23% of the land mass. And they're emitting methane from both the, uh, the nose end and the tail end. 
the idea that methane is causing dangerous global warming is incorrect as well. Will Happer of Princeton University has pointed out that the amount of methane and the amount of, amount of carbon dioxide, for that matter, are saturated in the atmosphere. If the atmospheric level of methane were either to double, were to double either from man-made or natural causes, we'd only see a 0.3% change in Earth's greenhouse effect. Again, uh, too small to detect. But anyway, as you say, we've got uh, everybody out there saying we've got to get rid of meat, we've got to get rid of beef. And so now we've entered the era of uh, fake meat to save the planet. <laughs> yeah, some of it's pretty terrible, too. <laughs> I haven't you know, even tried it. I, I'm, you know, I'm just not, not too interested. Most of it's synthetic as well. I mean, you're never going to talk about your natural or your organic fake meat. Well, you know, the United Nations has a suggestion. They think people ought to eat insects to fight world hunger. Oh, yeah. Here's a, quote, here's a quote from the UN 2013. Insects are reported to emit less greenhouse gases and less ammonia than cattle or pigs, and they require significantly less land or water than cattle rearing. Huh. That's a caterpillar pie. <laughs> so, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about writing another book. Uh, it's going to be a cookbook. I'm going to call it 101 Climate Safe Recipes, and we're going to put cricket casserole on the cover. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But, you know, if, when you talk about meat, it's interesting. Global consumption of meat and fish is up about 80% in the last 50 years or so. Uh, people are taller. They're living longer. Infant mortality has gone way down. Uh, we do have some older age diseases that are, that are coming in, cancer and whatnot. But there's really not a, a lot of evidence that consumption of meat is anything but healthy for people. Well, you know, the anti-meat situation goes all the way back to President Eisenhower when he had a heart attack and uh, his doctors decided that maybe he was eating too much meat and they financed some uh, studies of meat-eating areas of the world versus areas that ate less meat to try to prove that uh, meat was unhealthy. And I read all of those studies. They were eventually... Uh, proven quite false. And it really comes back to the diet of our, our ancestors. That, uh, while the life expectancy back in 1900 was half of what it is today, uh, they died of, of diseases. We didn't have uh, medicines. They didn't really die natural deaths. And their diet uh, with a, a reasonable amount of protein for meat was uh, a very healthy diet. So Virtually everything our audience is reading or hearing about the negatives of meat is false. Obviously, you can overdo everything. My wife doesn't let me have three steaks a week that I'd like to have. She thinks, you know, there's a limit. But uh, the anti-meat movement is just terrible. And it's definitely having an impact on our cattle industry, our, our pork industry. I'm not sure about chickens, but it's all false. And our listeners have to understand that. Well, we hope it doesn't get to the point where they start start banning things and putting mandates. And I think there's some European countries that have been toying with putting restrictions on meat. Hopefully we'll never get to that. But, you know, that seems to be the rule of public policy nowadays. Anything you don't like, whether it's natural gas for your home or uh, it's your internal combustion engine car or whatever else, we're going to put a ban on it. So, People ought to wake up and, and push back against that. 
You know, one question, just going back to the agriculture and energy topic that we hear is that we spend too much energy on agriculture. And I was reading just the other day that environmentalist Richard Heinberg says that we expend about 10 calories of fossil fuel for each calorie of food energy that we produce. So the question, of course, is, is agriculture using too much energy? Yeah, Heinberg uh, did a presentation in 2008, and he was talking about this, this 10 to 1 factor, and he basically was pitching at that time peak oil. If we ran out of oil, we would have this, this problem with global famine, and we needed to prepare for it. But about the same time, we were having a, a modern energy miracle in the United States, and that was the production of oil and gas from shale fields. U.S. oil production declined uh, almost in half from 1970 to 2008, but then it's shot up to uh, 13 million barrels a day in 2019, still close to that level. And that's because uh, the geologists and petroleum engineers figured out how to get oil and gas from shale through hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling. Beyond that, if you look at world production and reserves, back in 1980, the world had about 27 years of supply in terms of reserves. And today we're about 50 uh, years of supply in terms of reserves. In other words, the ingenuity of the industry has created more available oil and gas, even though production has continued to rise. So, you know, I don't think we need to worry about our agriculture using uh, oil and gas for tractors. We're not going to run out and we're not going to have peak oil. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good to hear. Well, I want to revisit the uh, the meat issue again and add a little uh, humor uh, three years ago, I was giving a lecture in, uh, in Denver to the National Cattlemen's Association. It was a Thursday morning lecture, and Wednesday night, I decided to eat in the best steakhouse in Denver that I was told was called Del Frisco's. So I go in there, it's a steakhouse, to uh, have dinner and buy a steak, and I thought I'd, I'd address the cattlemen the next day with some really good statistics. I took the time to count every seat in that restaurant and it was very large. It turned out there were 450 seats and that Wednesday night, they were all full. So uh, people are really not eating less meat. And I think you pointed out that uh, it's it, as countries become more affluent, they eat more meat, all of the effort of these crazy leftists wanting to hurt agriculture, wanting to destroy the cattle industry will fail entirely. In fact, I just started writing an article, uh, read an essay by a German scientist that uh, the essay had a section titled, Why They Will Fail. And it really excited me, and I read it, and I'm going to write another article expanding on it, that if you listen to the mainstream media every day, you know, we started out talking, Tom was talking about the bad news that you're hearing constantly. If that's what you read every day, you really think the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And currently under the Biden administration, it clearly gets worse every day. But they will fail. The Biden administration will lose all of its power in the election of 2022 in November. Clearly, they know they're going to lose the House. The House spends all the money. And while Biden will stay in office for two more years, his power 
will uh, melt away. So efforts like getting rid of meat and uh, really trying to make the farmer look like a bad guy, uh, they will all fail. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had a question for Steve. Some of our audience, of course, are concerned about animal welfare, and that's why they're against meat consumption. But surely in, in America, the farm animals are treated a lot better than most of the world. I, I'm just speculating, but is that generally true? Yeah, I don't know if I can comment that on, uh, on that, Tom. I don't have real good uh, connections around the world. I do know that there are a lot of regulations to govern antibiotics that can be given to animals, their conditions for being uh, raised or slaughtered and all those sorts of things. I think we are trying to uh, make things as humane as possible. Uh, maybe there's some ways to go on, on some of that. More than government regulations, uh, I have studied McDonald's regulations. They will not buy beef from any cattle operation where there is the least possibility of mistreating the animals, even to one rule I'm really aware of, and it's, it's kind of strange, I'm an animal lover, but this one is a, a weird one. If McDonald's is buying a herd of cattle, they inspect the movement of the cattle from one area into another. And if the cattle have to move into a narrow chute on into where they're actually being slaughtered, if they bump into each other, shoulder to shoulder, McDonald's will not buy those cattle. I mean, they mm. actually... Uh, inspect everything, and they want the cattle uh, to be treated as best as possible, really, till the day they die. And the way in which they die must also be instantaneous and painless. And while uh, I would think people who are vegetarians, because they can't stand the idea of killing animals, I really understand that. Those who are vegetarians because they think it's healthier are simply wrong. You know, I'm a great meat eater, but I certainly couldn't eat in a slaughterhouse. But while I, like you, Steve, I can't speak to how they do it in other countries, I don't think they're much different than uh, we are in terms of being humane. Going back to the pesticide issue, I mean, we talk about how much pesticide, how much environmental harm is being done? Too much water, too much land, too much fertilizer. Is that really true? One of the attacks on agriculture is that we're producing unhealthy food. And one of the big things a lot of people are scared about is pesticides. We did go through a period in the uh, 60s. We had uh, Rachel, Rachel Carson write Silent Spring, saying that all the birds were going to die because of DDT. That, uh, DDT was banned by the Environment Protection Agency, I think it was 1971 or two. And that actually caused some problems around the world because it was a very good uh, method of killing mosquitoes. We had malaria go kind of out of whack in many nations. It was, it was again, uh, legalized by the United Nations about the year 2000. But to get back to pesticides, today our modern society is plagued by what I call chemophobia. <laughs> we have a problem with uh, pesticides in our food. But that's really not the case. Our, our foods are very, very free of synthetic pesticides. Every year, the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, tests more than 10,000 food samples for pesticides. They find that it's very, very tiny. Over 99.5% of the samples 
have uh, pesticide levels below the limits set by the EPA. And these uh, limits are very, very low. They're typically 100 times below the no observed adverse effect level in laboratory experiments with animals. So the synthetic pesticides we're getting are very, very low. You know, I've not talked about this in a long time, but when I started my career as working for the U.S. Geological Survey, and uh, I was uh, testing samples of water, and the smallest particle I could test for, I'm going back to 1952 or so, the smallest particle was a part per million, one followed by six zeros. Uh, not very long after, we were able to see in a water supply or a food supply, a part per billion. Uh, that's one followed by nine zeros. Now we conventionally can see a part per trillion, a one followed by 12 zeros that can virtually never have any health impact. So a lot of times when you are reading a story by some environmental zealot group that say they found a chemical in the water or in the food, they do not tell you that it's parts per trillion totally meaningless. They just say, we found it. Uh, recently in my lectures, I'll hold up a glass of water and say, eventually, I think I can find a molecule of everything manufactured in Earth on Earth in this glass of water because yeah. our laboratory uh, ability you know, has skyrocketed, but the public doesn't understand that. And the environmental zealots that want to destroy society as we know it don't tell you that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing is people don't have a, a perspective when it comes to synthetic pesticides. They don't realize that they eat many, many times more natural pesticides. Uh, many of your listeners probably had a cup of coffee this morning. Well, caffeine is an insecticide uh, mm -hmm. that's there naturally. Some plants are about 10% of their weight is a pesticide. And so we eat all these plants with all these natural pesticides all the time. A guy named Ames in 1998 pointed out that only one part in every 10,000 of the pesticides we consume is synthetic. Everything else is natural. You get as much natural pesticide in a single cup of coffee as you get in an entire year of, of uh, eating food in terms of synthetic pesticides. The point is don't sweat what's in your coffee, but let's get over our, uh, our phobia about synthetic pesticides, which are really unreasonable. As plants evolve uh, and they develop an ability to fight off pests that destroy the plant, they evolve and develop chemicals that will kill the insects that are trying to destroy the plant. So almost all plants that survive have developed these, uh, these chemicals over you know, thousands of years to allow them to survive. And many of them you know, have literally hundreds of chemicals that do exactly that. And uh, you're right, Steve, uh, Bruce Ames really uh, did some great work on, uh, on showing you know, what chemicals are dangerous and 
what ones are, are not at all. He developed a test, the Ames test, uh, to determine that very quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, it strikes me, Jay, that we've, we've spoken in the past about the linear no threshold model for mm -hmm. nuclear radiation, where even the tiniest amount of nuclear radiation is bad for you, right down to zero. And it strikes me that with pesticides, surely the same thing must be true. There must be a level at which pesticides do you no harm whatsoever. Would that be true? Absolutely. I mean, that is a major problem. And that relates to what I said about our ability to find a part per trillion conventionally now, certainly always parts per billion, and uh, they don't uh, hurt you at all. So it does relate. We have this rule of the linear node threshold that says a single particle of radiation can cause cancer. It's absolutely untrue. We now know that uh, there's a level of radiation that is very beneficial. And so we have a whole area of nuclear medicine, which actually has been slowed down by the government that insists on saying any radiation is dangerous. And I'm sure with uh, pesticides, it is exactly the same thing. There's certainly uh, an amount that, that has no uh, negative effect and probably certain amounts that are beneficial. Anything well, right. in large quantities can kill you. That's uh, right. Pesticides are poison, but the dose makes the poison. The right. people that, that have to be concerned about pesticides are those involved in manufacturing it or spraying it, uh, not, not people just consuming things in their regular diet. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So when an environmentalist holds up a glass of water and says, there's arsenic in here, the question is, how, how much? And it may right. be totally insignificant. I, I just wanted to go back before we end and talk a little bit more about genetic modified foods. I mean, so often people forget that without genetic modification, there are major changes to our wheat crop that would occur. We'd lose a lot of our wheat crop because, of course, we've genetically modified them to grow in colder temperatures in Canada. But... Can you tell me more about that? I mean, GM foods, people act as if that's bad all the time, but is, is that true? Yeah. So genetic modification, I, I think Dr. Paul Berg of Stanford was, is recognized as the guy who started doing this. And basically it's taking a, a gene from one crop and transplanting it into another. Our agriculture has had tremendous gains. A study in 2014 says that yields with the bioengineered crops up 22% on average, Bioengineered crops allow yes, less use of pesticides. The uh, studies they looked at showed that pesticide use was down 37%. And uh, crops were more valuable for farmers as well. And as huh. you say, in the U.S. today, more than 90% of our corn, soybeans, and cotton come from bioengineered crops. Same thing in Brazil. Uh, India is using uh, uh, bioengineering for cotton, China using it for cotton and papyra. So, and by the way, this has been one of the, it's now about 15% of world farmland. Uh, it's one of the fastest adopt, adoptions in history of an innovation. The great news is that uh, the experience shows that GM foods are healthy. We've had literally trillions of servings now have been consumed by people of uh, foods that have been genetically engineered. There's no evidence any person has been harmed by biotech foods or the environment. And every major scientific group declares genetically modified foods safe, mm. including the World Health Organization, National Academy of Sciences, 
uh, the American Medical Association and many others. Uh, so it, it really is great for people. You know, the bad news is we still, if you're gonna have organic food, they don't allow it to be bioengineered. <laughs> and there are a bunch of other people that are kind of concerned about it, probably needlessly. Mm -hmm. So the Franken foods idea that the environmentalists constantly talk about is well, really completely wrong. You know, people don't realize that agriculture is a human in invention. There is literally nothing you eat every day which grows in nature unless you go get salmon from the deep ocean or, or a deer from the forest. Everything else that you eat has been uh, evolved over history, has been cross, uh, crossbred, cross-pollinated. Agriculture is a human invention, all of our food, and it's very, very good. I'll correct you there, Steve. Okay, I think uh, berries, natural, if you pick berries in the forest and, <laughs> okay. and, and possibly mushrooms, which I will not allow my wife to pick and cook for me because I don't trust her. But uh, <laughs> there, there are only, a, you're exactly right. I mean, there, there are a few other a things. very few things. Yeah, yeah very few. few things. So agriculture is a human invention. It's terrific. And by the way, we eat better than the kings of old. I like to talk For about sure. a study, a study done in Sweden. Uh, let me see this 2015 Stockholm University. They actually took a look at, at they had a, uh, a menu book of King Richard the, the second in the 14th century. And they looked at what he ate and they concluded that people in modern nations today eat better than the kings of old, better than this king. And it is true. <laughs> yeah. We, we got about five minutes left. Can we talk about future trends in agriculture to end off? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of great things. One of those is, is uh, bioengineered crops, of course. We are going to have some tremendous things going on. For example, there's some talk about growing uh, new milk types, for example. They, they may have some milk which is lactose-free, or they may be able to produce milk from, from animals, which is essentially equal to a human breast milk. I mean, there's a lot of things that, that, uh, that scientists are looking at. A disease-resistant, improved yields, more nutritious. Uh, we're going to have continued output boosted by modern agriculture. With regard to biotechnology, one of the great advances is, which I can easily explain to the audience, we study weeds uh, in the desert. How is it that uh, something can grow under high heat and arid, low humidity areas? We don't grow food uh, in the desert uh, generally, but we are now increasing the land areas that we can grow food that were considered hostile to agriculture. We try to find the genes in a weed in the desert that allow it to withstand heat, find the gene which allows it to withstand the dryness, and then experiment by transplanting those genes into our food crops. So one of the areas of biotechnology is that we're increasing the areas of the globe that we can actually farm. And that's, uh, you know, more added to the fact that we do not need to worry about famine in the world with a growing population. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's important. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it's likely that 
by uh, 2050 or so, malnutrition is going to disappear globally. We're at, as Jay mentioned earlier, we were at about 25, 30% of the world was in malnutrition, the people in 1960, 65. Now that's down about 10%. And the way it's dropping, it's going to be very close to zero within a few years. Huh, hooray. I think Peter Truman, the news anchor I was talking about earlier, would be really happy to hear this. And with increasing carbon dioxide, we're going to see more plants growing in dry areas because they don't need as much water. Isn't that true? That's true. The, the world is greening. <laughs> you know, I can exp I'd like to explain that point if we have time. When, yes, uh, you, have, when you have more carbon dioxide in the air, uh, plants have, uh, like their mouths are, are called somata, the, the, the plant has openings where it draws in carbon dioxide. When the air has more carbon dioxide, these stomata do not need to stay open as long. And when the stomata are open, the plant loses moisture. And so the less it has to be open to gain the necessary carbon dioxide, the less moisture it loses, which is one of the reasons we are growing more and more food in arid regions because there's more carbon dioxide throughout the atmosphere. In fact, the increase in carbon dioxide that is definitely due to the new industrial revolution since World War II is all positive. Carbon dioxide is not a pollutant. It's not a negative. It's wonderful. The world will be a better place if we could double the current level of carbon dioxide from 417 parts per million to 800 parts per million. So people shouldn't fear it. They ought to love it. Ah, yeah, exactly. Tom, well, we got time you know, for one more, one more future topic? Yes, you do. You got one minute to go. Go ahead. So, so one of the things that, that is really taken off is aqua farming. It used to be that people caught all of their seafood uh, through wild capture from the ocean. But uh, uh, more and more, we're doing farming of seafood in controlled environments, in tanks and other things in, in oceans and lakes. As a matter of fact, aqua farming uh, surpassed wild capture about 2013. We now get more of our world seafood production from aqua farming. And seafood production is up uh, by a factor of five since 1950. So... Uh, that's really a tremendous story. And this is just in its infancy relative to regular agriculture. It's going to get bigger and bigger as we go forward. Yeah, that's great. Well, what a super note to end on. You two guys, Steve Gorham, you know, I'm executive director of the Climate Science Coalition of America and author of many books, the most recent being about farming and how, in fact, it's actually benefiting our world a great deal. Starvation is gone outside the green box. Rethinking Sustainable Development by Steve. We'll include a link to that afterwards. So this is Tom Harris and Dr. Jay Lear with our guest, Steve Gorham, signing out from the other side of the story.